Hello, hello, search people, and welcome to the ninth episode of Three Things in Search. My name is Pedro Diaz. Three Things in Search is a weekly podcast where I pick apart and comment on the three most relevant search topics from last week. Uh, if you've been counting, you might have noticed that we had the NICAP, and last week, actually, there was in the previous where well, there should have been a previous episode, we, we skipped one, but I'll be resuming nevertheless. So for this episode, we have some quite interesting topics lined up. I'm going to touch on first, mobile-first indexing will move and resume soon. So we are entering April and we did the last push towards mobile-first indexing. Then on the second topic, reblocking pages or URLs after you allowed them to be crawled. Uh, some misconceptions about crawling and indexing systems and how we touched a bit of this in the last episode, I guess, but we are going to reiterate. And then the third topic about the zero-click search results. Uh, so last week there was some kind of activity around the study that came that claimed that 65% of searches stay in Google and do not end up on a website. And we are going to unpack this a little bit more so you understand the nuances here in data. So let's dive into the first topic. Uh, Google moving towards and pushing the last bit of mobile first indexing will resume. Uh, so I touched on this topic about three episodes ago on the sixth episode, I guess, of Three Things in Search. And initially, as I said in the episode, mobile first index, uh, the deadline to move everything was set for December 2020. And then with the coronavirus pandemic, Google opted to extend this deadline to April 2021. In in Summary, giving webmasters and website owners a bit more time to get things in order. Um, so we are entering the first week of April and Google is preparing to resume moving websites to mobile first index. So this will be actually like the last push. Many websites have already moved. Some of the ones that weren't moved are probably websites that either are desktop only and Google has kind of waiting on this or like they have a, a separate mobile configuration that makes things not completely clear. Um, so this is not a big deal if unless you have a separate mobile website. Uh, in this case, I would recommend that you listen to the episode six of this podcast. Uh, though, so if you have a desktop-only version and your website is relevant and reputable, you will likely not see any changes. But if you have a desktop-only version and your website is relevant uh, and, and Google will still crawl your desktop-only website with their mobile crawler. So it's not that like some disaster is going to happen and your site is going to disappear from the map just because mobile-first indexing is coming to, to, to play and that's where Google will operate 100% of the time. So no... Um, don't feel rushed. I mean, it would be nice that sites that are not mobile-friendly become mobile-friendly, but 
if you are not, then it's not the end of the world either. So on to the second topic, blocking previous, previously crawled URLs. This discussion uh, was a story that started with a tweet from Gary, where he said, like, quoting here, your periodic reminder that crawlers that obey robots.txt won't see a noindex directive on a page if said page is disallowed for crawling. So, uh, yeah, this means that what I already touched in one of the last episodes, noindex is a directive that controls indexing. It doesn't really control crawl. And robots.txt controls crawl, but it doesn't really control indexing. So some folks, and I understand we in this area of SEO and search engines, sometimes we have this OCD kind of, you know, mind where we would like to see results that are pristine and clean and don't have anything in them. If we set them a certain part of the website not to be indexed, we would not like to see anything in there. But, I mean, uh, many uh, people try to experiment with... um, like setting a noindex directive. And then what they would do is that they would unblock the website and let Google crawl those URLs where they set this directive in hopes that Google drops them completely. And then they would kind of reblock them, the, the URLs in the robots.txt after they have been dropped from the index. Unfortunately, this doesn't kind of cause or work the way that folks expect it to. Uh, because like once Google knows about a URL, it will try to recrawl it for quite a good while. But if Google has successfully crawled a URL previously, the crawl persistence will be way higher here. Because you mean you have given information to Google about what's in there, and Google will kind of attempt. It's like giving something to a dog, and they will come. You know. Wanting for more the first time you give it and then you realize it was a really big mistake. So it's basically the same here. Um, this will likely just achieve the opposite as you will feed more information of the URLs to Google and the crawlers will attempt to fetch everything even more frequently. So the best way to deal with kind of blocked URLs is that you don't really, and yet you really don't want them indexed. It's just like to let them be. You know, you don't have to care about this kind of URLs. And even if they are referenced in Google, they will likely not rank for anything freely. I mean, the crawl scheduler has a decay factor. And with every attempt that Google sees that something is blocked, it will crawl less and less frequently. And sometimes it's even like dropped completely from the index. So... Just a, uh, if something is just referenced there, it doesn't mean that, I mean, you have to achieve like 100% of the serve that is like completely blank and clean from those URLs. Um, blocked URLs, again, are unlikely to rank freely for common queries. If you want to know more, just go listen to the episode nine, uh, to the episode eight, actually. And this is the nine. And uh, boy, there's a lot of recurring stuff from a couple of weeks ago here. So, and on to the third and last topic. And the one, I won't lie, this is the 
story that I wanted to get to in this episode, the zero clicks in search results. Um, so last week there was a, stu- a study about uh, made by Rand Fishkin on the search ecosystem uh, using data from SimilarWeb. And this study uh, claimed that 64.82% of searches on Google, desktop and mobile combined ended up in search results without clicking to another web property. So previously, these studies that Rand did, they used to be done with data from now the defunct jump shot. So you can't really like compare this last study that was published now with the previous ones. It doesn't mean either that any of these studies were more or less accurate. I mean, the only party that has the real data here is Google, and we are just playing with kind of, you know, kids' data, which is not like really representative of the whole ecosystem. So a few things that we need to consider before we actually look and, you know, draw conclusions from any data in specifically on search queries, is what kind of queries are actually represented in the data and what are the changes in these queries? I mean, if we see a grow, something that grew, what kind of queries actually grew? Are people doing more like information seeking queries than like transactionals queries? Uh, we really need to understand what's the intent behind those queries before we draw any conclusions here. Because if people notice that Google is getting better at at giving them small bits of general knowledge or information, this might trigger the growth of certain queries. So if you see that something works really well in Google, you might try this more often. Uh, So in many uh, local queries, For example, users end up navigating to somewhere in a map or you get a phone number so you end up calling the business or, you know, going somewhere. Google has said before that the majority of queries are mobile and not desktop. Also, like, consider that on mobile, people tend to hold themselves back a little more from tapping into search results. I mean, for myself, I do this, especially if it's like an informational query. I don't want to deal with interstitials and nagging, you know, prompts from websites. So I usually, uh, when I do a search, I try to search for the information that I want in the in the in the search results themselves. I know in in websites descriptions and so on, and I really sometimes find myself avoiding from tapping. I don't know if it happens the same with all of you, but. I notice this is a more prevalent, you know, behavior when I'm on my mobile phone. So, um, I mean, if users get their information from a description snippet, a knowledge panel, a local result, or even an instant answer, they're likely not going to click or tap away to anything in search results. And another thing that you need to keep in mind when reading these studies is, is that these sources of data aren't really representative of the whole Google ecosystem. So usually these tools have a slice of actual Google's data. 
So if you try to infer something on it, be bear in mind that you are looking at a slice of the data and it might not be actually representative of the actual you know widespread behavior then remember that skewed data is perfect to paint any picture you want with it so you can make pseudo-data tell any story you want so this is really important here I mean, it's really easy to take a piece of data that it's incomplete or that is partial and make it, you know, build the narrative that you want around it. To be able to fairly get a view of, actu of what actually is happening, you'd need not only to get meaningful data, but also break it down and understand search behavior changes. I mean, I've seen people in on Twitter arguing about Google's answer because Google came out and they wrote a blog post, which I think it came with an like overly defensive kind of tone. And I think Google shouldn't, should have, I mean, taken the opportunity just to you know, you know, put out more data and explain things instead of looking that they are responding to something. It means, it seems that they were like, you know, uncomfortable with things and I, I mean and this is and to be honest this is nothing but Google's fault and I will go more into why I think it's Google fault a bit ahead but um, so because just because you see just because you need to factor what has actually changed in search this changes everything in the data it's like saying for example Oh, you used to give me 500 horses to ride for every 10,000 horses you had. And now you have 100,000 horses, but you still only give me 500 to ride. So what, what happened? You, you still only give me 500 to ride, although you're, you have much more horses than you, than you usually had. Well, if the remaining 90,000 horses are seahorses, you're not going to be able to ride them anyway. So this is like, you need to understand the data breakdown and not just like, you know, superficially call it like searches because there's a lot in searches. Um, otherwise, you'd be falling into a misleading narrative. And I think it's what what's happening here for the majority of it. This is in part Google's fault, as I said. I mean, Google has been taking data away every time they have the chance. The excuses from G GDPR to privacy with encryption and security have been very convenient for Google as they use this to take away more data than they would actually need to take, in my opinion. So Google has been pushing towards their AI systems every time they can. And every time they do this, they take away data, claiming, oh, you don't need to look at this data anymore to make any decisions we will make all the decisions for you. So, and we should try, they claim that we should trust their AI systems to do the work and we don't actually need the data for decision-making, which is, I think it's a really dangerous path to go down in. So this opens way for this kind of, you know, this kind of problems to arise where someone takes, you know, 
data from a third party source where it's just a set of skewed data and then they paint the scenario that goes with their predefined narrative it's called the confirmation bias and i'd like actually to see more studies that when when we achieve some kind of conclusion they would also include studies that we have done to disprove our assumptions. I mean, it's really easy to just do a study that proves our assumptions because we are naturally biased to, you know, accept things that go our own way. But I would like to see, together with these kinds of studies, also studies that the same person did. You know, I tried to refute my own narrative and I couldn't. You know, try to poke holes, poke holes in your own data is usually a good way to go. So it's very dangerous to run with a narrative without critically thinking about it and then, you know, not opening it and op opening it to the wider audience in this kind of way. So lastly, I'd like to remind that Google's aim is to serve users and not to send traffic to websites. As an SEO, if you look at something that Google does, I would also recommend that you try and see it through the eyes of a regular user. Sometimes just go and like, if I was a regular user and I didn't own like a website or anything, would I like this? Do I feel like this is valuable? If 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 you like it, but as a user, but you hate it as an SEO, then you'll understand what I'm talking about. Google is here to serve users and not to send traffic to websites. So this is it for me for this week. We went a bit overboard with time, but I hope it's valuable. If you like the podcast, please rate it in your marketplace of choice. If you came across a specific topic or have a subject that you'd like me to comment on, feel free to hit me on Twitter. I'm at Pedro Diaz. If I haven't covered before, I'll more gladly than, you know, give my opinion on it and publish it. This was Three Things in Search. I'm Pedro Diaz and see you next week.